Welcome to God's Favorites, the Minisode. The Minisode will be a follow-up to our previous series, a smaller topic but still worthy of some attention. Today's topic is the toughest flower on the seas. History called Molly Brown unsinkable, but the title could have also been applied to Violet Jessup. Charles Lightoller wasn't the only person aboard the Titanic to have repeated brushes with death or extraordinary experiences on sea and land. Allow me to introduce you to Violet. Violet Jessup was one of the stewardesses aboard the Titanic, and decades after the disaster, she remains a unique individual. Her memoirs are one of the few published first-hand writings of what it was like to be a woman with a career at sea during the late 1800s and early 1900s. She was born in October 1887 in Bahia Blanca, Argentina, to Irish parents, William and Catherine. She was the first of nine children, six of whom survived to adulthood. Violet's early life was not easy. She suffered from severe health problems. Before she turned five, she and her infant brother Ray contracted scarlet fever. Violet survived, but Ray did not. Violet later contracted tuberculosis, known in those days as consumption, that was so severe that she was hospitalized at the British Hospital in Buenos Aires. There she became extremely fond of her doctors and nurses. She also became a particular favorite of a doctor and nurse who were in love, who would slip love letters to each other under Violet's pillow for the other to find. Nobody expected Violet to survive, but she did. One doctor told Violet's family that her only possible chance, almost certainly a hopeless one, was to take Violet to a drier climate. So Violet's father got himself transferred to Mendoza in the Andes. Almost miraculously, it worked. Violet would also later write in her memoirs that the choice she made was the deciding factor in her survival. She said she had simply decided to not die. Being the eldest meant that Violet ended up sharing a great deal of the responsibilities in the home early in her life, and this only increased when Violet's father tragically died following a cancer surgery when she was 16 years old. After her father's death, the family chose to go back to England. Violet's mother also became ill around this time, and it was at that point that Violet decided to become a stewardess herself. She began applying to serve as a stewardess with the Royal Mail Service, it wasn't easy at first. Her age was considered a liability, and it made it hard for her to get a job. She also had another problem. She was beautiful. Her appearance was a hindrance. She was very attractive, and nobody wanted to hire her on the grounds that she would be a distraction to the men on board. To get around this, Violet dressed down, dotty for job interviews. The strategy finally worked. Violet was hired by the Royal Mail Line, and her first run was to the British colonies in Asia. She learned to love sea travel, but here's one thing you should know about Violet. She couldn't swim. After three years of service with the Royal Mail, Violet was dismissed from the company. The company's justification for her being let go was that she had been flirting while on the job. In reality... Violet had spurned the advances of her captain and was fired for it. Despite the cause given, Violet was still very highly regarded. Her conduct notes in her official records all noted her performances very good, but she felt deeply humiliated. I knew that from now on, life at sea, if I could cope with it, was going to be a hard challenge, she wrote. She could not have been more right. 
The firing led Violet ultimately joining the White Star Line. Not her first choice. Good call, Violet. But now at 24 years old, she had earned a reputation for reliability. When the White Star Line hired her, they didn't even interview her. They just told her to report for assignment. In her writings, Violet noted that she had heard nothing but good things about the White Star Line. Her objections were more to do with the fact that the company had a reputation for indulging passengers, especially the more demanding ones to the utmost possible extent. Violet's hesitation also had to do with the nature of the North Atlantic itself. She described it as an ocean whose tempestuous vagaries I had little desire to sample. Her first posting was to the RMS Majestic, and when the RMS Olympic, the largest civilian liner of the time, put to sea for its maiden voyage, Violet was assigned to its crew. She was aboard the Olympic when the British warship Hawk swerved off course and plowed bow first into the starboard side of the Olympic, gouging two large holes in the hull. The accidental collision fortunately resulted in no deaths. Violet also wrote glowingly about Thomas Andrews, the designer of the Olympic and its sister ship, Titanic. Andrews was popular among the crews of the White Star Line ships because he listened to the crew's needs and designed ships accordingly. And he had a soft spot for Violet. Given her experience and reputation, it was no surprise that Violet was selected as one of the stewardesses for the maiden voyage of the RMS Titanic. The early days of the run from Southampton to New York were clear and calm, and Violet's writings recount the hustle and bustle to get passengers settled and for the crew to familiarize themselves with a brand new ship. Everything seemed to be going well for the Titanic. But it was just before midnight on April 14th when Violet was reading in her room and nearly asleep in her bunk. She heard a loud crash and a sound of metal being torn open. Then the engine stopped and there was a long, scary silence. Violet's cabin mate broke the silence, saying, Well, that sounds as if something has happened. More noise came as the off-duty crew started heading to their stations, which was expected. But it was a fellow steward, Thomas Kellen, who gave them their first taste of the coming reality with a simple question. You know the ship is sinking. Violet and other crew reported to the section of the ship that was their responsibility and began helping passengers into life belts. There was an air of calm all around her, and nobody seemed worried or bothered, and most were not even fully awake. And then came the order. Even though it was phrased as a precaution, it was ominous all the same. Everybody to the boats! Once their section was clear, Violet and her cabinmate went back to their quarters, She was still almost unable to fathom that such a new, modern ship could sink. She began organizing her belongings. Suddenly, Kellen was at her door, almost shouting. He dragged Violet over to her closet and helped her pick out something warm and ordered her to the deck. Violet made her way to Lifeboat 16, launched by 6th Officer James Moody, who was among the 1,500 victims. Up on deck, Violet was struck by a crowd that seemed totally disconnected from the harsh reality. Early on, virtually no one, including Captain Smith, behaved as if they were taking the situation seriously. She saw musicians, instruments in hand, making their way out onto the deck and heard part of their final performance, including their now iconic choice of Nearer My God to Thee. But as the minutes dragged on and the ship's bow began to noticeably dip, that changed. 
Just before her lifeboat 16 was lowered into the water, one of the officers shoved a bundle, a swaddled baby, into Violet's arms. And then they descended. They passed row after row of brightly lit portholes, and as white distress rockets burst into the night overhead, their boats smacked into the water and they began to row away from the ship. Violet watched as the first of Titanic's four engine funnels collapsed, and then the ship's hull broke in two, unable to sustain the massive weight of the ship. The remaining half of the hull remained upright briefly and then slid beneath the surface. Violet's description of those moments is as full of beauty as it is of sorrow and despair. One awful moment of empty, misty blackness enveloped us in its loneliness, and then an unforgettable, agonizing cry went up from 1,500 despairing throats. A long wail, and then silence, and our tiny craft tossing about at the mercy of an ice field. Lifeboat 16 drifted for hours until shortly after dawn. The first ship on scene, RMS Carpathia, arrived and began taking survivors from the lifeboats. Other ships arrived shortly after, and Violet and the other 705 passengers were taken to New York City. And yet Violet returned to work and life at sea quickly. She would continue to work with the White Star Line for another two years until August 1914. The outbreak of World War I disrupted sea traffic on the North Atlantic. Yet another of Titanic's sister ships, Britannic, never took to the seas as a passenger liner. Instead, she was commandeered for the war effort, and it was aboard the Britannic that two years into the war and now working as a nurse, Violet shipped out once more. Nine days into Britannic's journey from England to one of the Greek islands in the Aegean Sea, the ship struck a mine during breakfast on the morning of November 21st, 1916. In contrast to the response from those aboard the Titanic as it sank, those aboard Britannic treated the emergency with the gravity it deserved. The damage to the Britannic was severe, and its captain, Charles Bartlett, began preparing his crew to take to the lifeboats to put on their life belts and prepare to abandon ship. Once many of the lifeboats were away, Bartlett made a desperate bid to run Britannic aground on the nearby island of Kia. Unfortunately, it soon became clear this wasn't possible, and Captain Bartlett ordered the ship's engines stopped. In a moment of brevity, Violet remembered the one thing that she had wished she had taken with her aboard the RMS Carpathia when the Titanic sank, and that was her toothbrush. So she ran back to her cabin to retrieve it before getting onto a lifeboat. Two lifeboats were lowered into the sea prematurely, and Violet was aboard the second. The first lifeboat was pulled into one of Britannic's still-spinning propellers and was smashed to bits. Violet's lifeboat was also pulled in, and she suddenly found herself alone on the boat as everyone else tried to jump and swim away. Violet hesitated for only a moment, but it was a big moment of doubt. She was afraid of drowning for a very good reason— as previously mentioned, Violet could not swim, but her battle with tuberculosis had left her with only one working lung. Fear aside, Violet still leapt away from the devouring propeller. As the lifeboat was destroyed, she was pulled underwater and something struck her in the back of the head. Dazed, Violet was still able to pull herself to the surface and grab onto a free-floating lifebelt. As she broke the surface, she found herself surrounded by 
dead, maimed, and dying individuals, and all she could do was to try not to look around her at the surrounding carnage. Rescued shortly thereafter by Greek civilians, Violet found that on top of the blow to her head, she had also suffered a severe gash on one of her legs, so she had no memory of how it happened. Though badly injured herself, Violet still helped with caring for her fellow shipmates until another British ship arrived to pick up survivors. Ultimately, Violet's leg injury was bone deep. It took three years to heal, and despite the blow to Violet's head, she worked her way through all of it. She would later discover that the blow to her head in 1916 had fractured her skull severely. She would suffer headaches for the rest of her life. Doctors discovered the skull fracture years later and said it was her beautiful auburn hair that was so thick that saved her life. After being repatriated to Britain, Violet found herself looking for work as the war raged on. Her upbringing in Argentina served her in this instance, helping her secure a job with the London branch of an Argentinian bank. In 1920, Violet rejoined the White Star Line, where she would remain until 1926. That year, she joined the Red Star Line and stayed with them until 1934. In 1934, Violet returned to her roots, rejoining the Royal Mail Service, with which she'd started. Her last run before she retired was aboard the RMS Andes on the Brazil Mel Run to South America. Violet knew she had a story to tell, and she put it down in her memoirs in the 1930s, but no one wanted to buy it or publish it, so she set them aside for decades. John Max Tone Graham, a noted maritime historian and author, knew of Jessup because of his mother, whom Violet served as a stewardess with on a voyage. Graham met with Violet in 1970 for their only meeting— she died the following year from heart failure. He ultimately succeeded in getting Violet's memoirs published in 1997. Unfortunately, Violet never knew her story would one day be widely read. Violet's memoirs shed light on working life at sea in a totally new light. First-hand accounts by a working woman at sea from Violet's era are very hard to come by. And they talk about the bright places of humanity and the wonder of voyaging around the world, but... Violet's memoirs also shined a light on the ugly truth for women, inside and outside of Violet's profession. It was hard to be a woman just about everywhere, and that included for women working at sea. And now here's a trigger warning for some of Violet's early trauma that remained in her memoirs. Violet's early childhood was marred by an incident where a close family friend molested her. As a young woman, Violet worked as a governess for a family, and that came to an end when the husband and father in that family sexually assaulted her. And at sea, it wasn't much better. As we mentioned, Violet was dismissed from one of her jobs because she spurned the advances of a captain. She also had to fight off a ship's purser who tried to sneak in on her one night. But, as for love, there was one man that Violet cared for very deeply. She only called him Ned. They worked together during her early career with the Royal Mail Service and stayed in touch for years, but Violet ultimately regretted that Ned never showed up to marry her and build a life with her. He left her jaded. Interspersed throughout her career among shipwrecks, the hardships, and more, Violet Jessup did ultimately get married. Her wedding happened in October 1923 to a fellow White Star Line crew member named John James Lewis, but the marriage only lasted a year. Violet's memoirs never mention him, but one section of the book inexplicably vanished, and Graham could not find it. 
Violet's memoir is published without Chapter 18, and whatever it contained will be a mystery until that chapter resurfaces. Violet never married again and never had children. She lived out her days in a cottage named Maythorn in the town of Great Ashfield in Suffolk, caring for chickens and seeming content to live a quiet life in the end. Violet endured a life where she had to grow up far too early, helping raise her siblings. The only time she ever got a break from some kind of leading role in the household was when she lived in a convent for her schooling. She took to the sea to help support her family because her mother no longer could and her father, well, he was deceased. During her voyages, she accumulated memories and experiences and wrote them down, helping paint a never-before-seen picture of life for her and those like her. She was a survivor, from tuberculosis to shipwreck after shipwreck. Years after retirement, Jessup recounted that she had received a phone call. The caller asked Violet, if someone had handed her a baby just before lifeboat 16 was lowered from the Titanic. Violet confirmed that she had, and the caller revealed, I was the baby. But the person hung up the phone before Violet could ask more. When she explained this to a friend, they said maybe it was a prank call. But Violet explained she had never told anyone else that story before. In her memoirs, Violet paints a picture that highlights the distance between her era and the modern and the corresponding progress, but it also shows how far the struggle for equality must still travel. And yet, even in so much tragedy, Violet remained optimistic. During her early career on the South American run, Violet summed up so much of her experience. Life on board was a sequence of jars which at times hurt deeply, yet it was teeming with interest, and because I was built that way, limitless hope. And that's what Violet Jessup stood for. Limitless hope. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast where we talk about some of the people who were God's favorites in history, or at least those who thought they were. This is one of our mini-sows, and we hope to have mini-sows following every major series. The vast majority of this episode was researched by my friend and assistant, Dariush Shafa, friend from college who has been a wonderful help. And of course, it's also co-written a little bit here by me and produced by me. I'm Melissa, hi! The main source for today's mini-sode was, of course, Titanic Survivor a memoir by Violet Jessup. And join us in two weeks for our next series about America's favorite fighting Frenchman, the Marquis de Lafayette. See you next time, friends.